From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Cancer of the esophagus makes up about 1% of the cancers diagnosed in the United States, and its survivability is greatest when it's caught early. Talking with me about esophageal cancer and reflux is Dr. Jason Wallen. He's Division Chief of Thoracic Surgery and the Medical Director of Lung Cancer and the Thoracic Oncology Program at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Wallen. Thank you, Amber. So is heartburn or, or reflux, is that an early warning sign of esophageal cancer? Absolutely not. Uh, heartburn and gastroesophageal reflux are, well, gastroesophageal reflux is the disease. Heartburn is a symptom of that. And, and gastroesophageal reflux disease is one of the most common diseases that affect uh, Americans. And so, a, and as you said, esophageal cancer still remains a very rare cancer. Reflux is one of the principal risk factors for it, but the vast majority of patients with reflux never even get close to developing an esophageal cancer. Because I, when I think of heartburn, I mean, that's something it seems like everyone is going to experience at some point based on something that they ate. But this is GERD or gastroesophageal reflux. That's, that's worse than heartburn, right? So a uh, gastroesophageal reflux, I guess, would be the, the, the disease and heartburn is one of the most common symptoms of it. So there are actually two what we call typical symptoms of gastroesophageal reflux disease. One is heartburn, which we define as a burning pain behind the breastbone. And the second one is regurgitation. And a lot of patients will experience this as a fluid coming up out of their esophagus at nighttime when they sleep or sometimes when they bend over. A lot of people will will describe it as vomiting, but it's different than vomiting because there's no nausea beforehand and it's not really an active process. It's almost like, like food or acid is just kind of falling out of you. And, uh, and, and it can be quite miserable because people wake up in the middle of the night coughing and sputtering because it, some of it goes into their lungs and it can be a very miserable symptom to suffer through. And so those are the two main symptoms that we see in patients with gastroesophageal reflux disease. And like you mentioned, you know, almost everybody's going to have some heartburn, at least at some point uh, where, you know, they ate the wrong food. And there are a number of foods and, and other uh, activities that people partake in that can predispose them to episodes of gastroesophageal reflux. And just having, you know, an episode doesn't mean you have the disease. Uh, you know, usually we're talking about people who have uh, heartburn and regurgitation so commonly that there's not really anything that they can do about it and they have to be on medications regularly to control it. So is it important to treat heartburn if you have heartburn that is becoming regular? Um, does it need to be treated or is it safe to just suffer through episodes of heartburn? Uh, I don't think it's ever a good idea to just suffer unnecessarily. Um, you know, there are so many treatments for acid reflux that are really safe and, and easy to manage. Um, but, you know, the most important thing is to, before you jump to medications uh, or things you buy from the pharmacy to treat your gastroesophageal reflux disease, is to look at some of the changes you can make in your lifestyle that can uh, make it less likely that you're going to suffer. And, you know, like I said, there are certain foods that you can avoid. Uh, most of us recommend that you avoid fatty meals. You know, really greasy foods can relax the lower esophageal sphincter and allow, you know, things like acid to come up. 
caffeine and chocolate, you know, it's basically all the things we enjoy, uh, you know, can relax the lower esophageal sphincter. Uh, other things that are more problematic are alcohol and tobacco smoke also can relax the sphincter. Um, there are other uh, lifestyle changes you can make, uh, particularly when people suffer at night, is to avoid eating late at night. I'm sure many people have heard that advice from their doctors, you know, to try and eat three or four hours before lying down. And, and if lying down is a big problem, then uh, sleeping propped up uh, can be very helpful. And, and a lot of people uh, don't do this quite right either because they hear that from their doctor and then they, they throw an extra pillow under their head. But elevating the head, your head doesn't do anything because, you know, nobody has heartburn in their head. It's, it's their chest that's the problem. And so you need to get, you know, a lot of support under your back. And usually pillows don't work that well because even if you can get enough of them, you tend to slide off of them in the middle of the night. And so getting something like a foam wedge, uh, you know, which is available at drugstores or on Amazon is, is a great solution. Uh, the more expensive option is to get uh, one of these electronic beds that goes up and down where you can put your whole back up. Um, and then the cheapest solution is, is to get you a couple of concrete blocks from your local empty lot and put them under the head of the bed and elevate the whole bed up on an angle. And that's particularly helpful for people who sleep on their stomachs or on their sides because, uh, you know, if you sleep on your stomach, it's hard to sleep on a wedge uh, or an incline, you know, so that's a, a, a simple solution to that that uh, a lot of people overlook. So if, if people have done some of these lifestyle modifications and they've been uh, good about their diet and they're taking over-the-counter medicines, but they're still not getting relief, is that when it's time to, to see a physician? Yeah, I think it's always a good idea to mention it to your doctor, even if you are using over-the-counter medications and even getting uh, good relief from over-the-counter medications. Um, but yeah, once you've exhausted, uh, you know, things like antacids like Tums and Rolaids and uh, Alka-Seltzer and, and Maalox and the like, you know, there are other over-the-counter medications, you know, that people take, uh, things we call uh, histamine receptor uh, antagonists, which are things like uh, Pepsid and Tagamet, which people see on the market, or the gener generics are, are uh, um, famotidine and uh, cimetidine. Those uh, are uh, very inexpensive and very effective, and uh, they also have the advantage that they work immediately. Um, so you can use them either to maintain a symptom-free state or what we call for rescue therapy, where if you're in trouble right now and you've got heartburn, you can take uh, you know, one of these drugs and they'll provide you know, very rapid relief. Um, a lot of people uh, are using the newer class of medications, which are proton pump inhibitors, which are the most powerful uh, anti-reflux medications we have. Uh, we say that, but they don't really prevent reflux. What they do is shut down uh, acid production in the stomach, and they're incredibly powerful for accomplishing that. And they're available over the counter now as well. They're more expensive than some of the other treatments. Um, and they're also not good for rescue, meaning if you take them, they don't usually have an immediate effect. They're much more useful when taken either every day, once a day, or twice a day, uh, as the directions, you know, will state. Um, and uh, but probably once you get to that point, you, you should be talking to uh, your doctor to make sure that that's the right treatment or that there's no other testing that would be appropriate. Because there are some people who have symptoms, particularly chest discomfort, 
where there can be other reasons besides uh, acid reflux uh, that are causing that discomfort. And some of them can be dangerous. And one of the red flags is when you're taking you're doing all the things you're supposed to be doing. You've changed your lifestyle. You're eating right. You know, you've taken some over-the-counter medications and they're not working. That should raise an alarm bell that maybe this is an acid reflux. And that can be a great time to talk to your doctor to make sure that you're actually doing the right thing. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Jason Wallen. He's Division Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Upstate and the Medical Director of Lung Cancer in the Thoracic Oncology Program at Upstate. So how do you go about telling whether there's damage to the esophagus if someone's been suffering with this, these symptoms? Um, are there tests to tell if, if there's been damage? Sure. The most common test that we do these days is, is refer patients for endoscopy, where uh, usually a gastroenterologist will put a scope down uh, inside the esophagus to have a look. It's very similar to what a lot of patients will have already gone through, which is colonoscopies that a lot of people have, you know, for screening for colon cancer, just obviously going through the other direction. Um, there are other tests that are less invasive, but don't provide quite as much information, like certain types of x-rays. Um, but endoscopy is so widely available, that's largely supplanted these other techniques when it comes for evaluation. I've heard of something called Barrett's esophagus. What, what is that? So Barrett's esophagus is also a relatively rare condition. Uh, Barrett's is the an adaptation of the esophagus to too much acid exposure. So the lining of the esophagus is not designed to be exposed to acid all the time. And so after prolonged exposure, it makes some changes uh, to adapt. And those changes can cause problems. Um, and so Barrett's is, is actually a type of precancerous state. And once people are known to have Barrett's esophagus, which again is quite rare, uh, then uh, it's recommended that they do get endoscopy from time to time. Uh, to make sure that there's no progression of their Barrett's. And that's an absolute indication to start somebody on some type of therapy for their acid reflux. Typically that's medical therapy, but sometimes even surgeries are recommended. So when is surgery recommended and what are the options? So surgery is recommended for people with acid reflux that cannot be controlled in some other way. Um, you know, when you, when you're, whenever you're treating a disease, there's going to be some side effects. And uh, the nice thing about medications are if you don't like the side effects, usually you can just stop taking the medication and the side effects go away, or you can change to different medication. Um, surgeries are usually used, like I said, when medical therapy fails and patients have symptoms that are still really uh, significant or impairing, uh, despite the fact that they're taking medicines, and, uh, and the surgeries are incredibly effective. But if you have side effects from a surgery that you don't like, then you're in trouble because they're much harder to reverse at that point. And so we'd like to think of surgery as a last resort for patients. But because the surgeries are so effective and because they are quite safe, we don't want people suffering uh, with acid reflux that's poorly controlled. I don't want to put the message out there that if your medications are not working, you should, you should worry about an operation. But I think all of us can understand that we would prefer to avoid surgeries on ourselves if there's something else we could do besides having one. I don't think anybody you know, relishes the thought of going under the knife uh, or under anesthesia for anything if they can avoid it. Right. Well, what, let's talk about the options for someone who is diagnosed with esophageal cancer. Is surgery always recommended first? 
For esophageal cancer, no. Um, so the most important thing to sort out when any patient is diagnosed with a cancer is what is the stage of that cancer. And that's true for every cancer. And almost every cancer gets a number uh, one, two, three, or four. Whereas one is the earliest stage where usually it's a small tumor wherever it began. Four means it's spread to other parts of the body. And then there's twos and threes, which either maybe is a big tumor or maybe there's some lymph nodes involved or perhaps a combination of the two. And it varies, you know, from cancer to cancer, you know, what the details of that uh, of that staging system are. But the stage is really important to determine what the most appropriate treatment is. And when you're talking about esophageal cancer, uh, if it's a very early stage, which is certainly when you'd like to find any cancer, then surgery can be the first option. Uh, it's not the only option, but it's generally the preferred. Uh, as cancer becomes more advanced, then other treatments become important as well, such as chemotherapy, radiation therapy, even immunotherapy. Um, and when you get to the most advanced stages, then surgery doesn't have a lot of relevance uh, at all, at least in terms of, uh, of curing somebody or removing a cancer, but surgery can often be helpful to improve symptoms uh, that a cancer uh, can provide. So seeing a thoracic surgeon when you have an esophageal cancer is probably the right thing for most patients at some point during their disease process. So someone with esophageal cancer might have a thoracic surgeon like yourself taking care of them, but what other medical specialists would likely also be involved? So most patients, unfortunately, with esophageal cancer do show up with relatively advanced disease, usually in the stage two to three range. And that's because it is difficult to detect at an early stage because most people don't have symptoms until the stage becomes more advanced. And so it's very common that a patient will also have a medical oncologist, somebody who might provide them chemotherapy, uh, and a radiation oncologist, uh, somebody who provide radiation treatment to the esophagus as well. And most of our patients who end up getting surgery also end up getting some form of chemotherapy and radiation treatment as well to provide them the best chance at cure and long-term survival. In general, is this a cancer that grows slowly or quickly and is it likely to spread? I always tell patients, if you had to pick a cancer to get, this is not the one. Uh, they do tend to be aggressive. Uh, they do tend to spread early, um, uh, which is one of the problems we have with treatment. And, uh, and it tends to be resistant to a lot of the treatments we provide. That doesn't mean we don't do them. It doesn't mean they're not helpful. It just means that treatment is not as effective for esophageal cancer as it is for many of the other cancers that we treat. And so it, it is important to not ignore symptoms and to seek help help uh, when you might have an esophageal cancer. It's incredibly important when you know you have Barrett's esophagus to adhere to the recommended uh, surveillance, which is the endoscopies that a gastroenterologist will perform to keep track of your Barrett's to make sure that it doesn't progress or that if it does progress, that it gets treated appropriately. Um, you know, the, the, the chances that these things happen are, are, are low, but the consequences are high. And so it's really, really important to mark your calendars and make sure that you get, you know, all of your diagnostics testing done, that you don't ignore any changes in your symptoms. So let's go over the symptoms of esophageal cancer. What's important for people to be looking out for? So Amber, that's a great question. And the most important symptom for an esophageal cancer is difficulty swallowing. And when we say that, you know, we're talking about any difficulty with food passing from the time that it actually passes past your tongue and until the time that it actually reaches your abdomen. So uh, most patients will suffer with some form of a blockage somewhere behind their breastbone. They'll feel it. Sometimes it can be high even in the neck, but most of the time it's lower down and patients will feel the food getting stuck. A lot of patients will start modifying 
modifying their diet uh, because of this trouble and they start avoiding things like meats and breads uh, or anything that's difficult to chew. And, and some patients by the time, that time they come to see us have even gotten down to a pureed or even a liquid diet uh, because they're struggling so much. And it's uh, these, I can't stress enough how important these symptoms are. These are not normal and, uh, and really require prompt medical attention to figure out why people are having these kinds of problems. But it's tricky because they do tend to sneak up on patients. We talked about that this can be a fast-growing cancer, uh, but the symptoms kind of come on slowly. And patients, you know, sometimes they make these changes in their diets very slowly too, and they forget that they've even done them or why they've done them. And so uh, keeping track and being aware uh, of when, you know, you can't swallow a steak or, uh, or, or a piece of bread, uh, that's a real problem because you ought to be able to do that. And there are no good reasons why you shouldn't be able to. Thank you to Dr. Jason Wallen, who leads Upstate's Thoracic Oncology Program and Thoracic Surgery Division. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.